Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Kurt Peeler. And this week, we're going to talk about perhaps one of the most famous battles in the entire World War II and a change of tide on the Allied side of the war, which is, of course, D-Day and the landing on Normandy at Omaha Beach. So, of course, as always, you have written a book that we're going to begin with this discussing on this topic, but I want to say, what, what was it about D-Day and the liberation of France that got you so fascinated about this part um, of the World War II? Yeah, I mean, I think D-Day um, um, has emerged, I think, not only in the United States, but I think particularly in Western Europe, and I would say in Europe in general, as one of the defining moments of World War II. Um, it was the long-awaited Second Front that uh, Stalin and the Soviet Union was, was pressing the Western allies to open. Um, it does, it's a success. Um, it's a success with a great cost. It does, it does bring um, the, the British and American armies, the bulk of the British and American armies finally confront the, the bulk of the, of the German armies in Western Europe. Now, one of the important things always about D-Day, I think that 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 gets in our remembering D-Day, we must not forget that neither the British um, or the Americans or the Canadians, the three biggest uh, land forces in in Western Europe, never confronted the bulk of the German army. That the bulk of the German army, after June twenty second, nineteen forty one, until the war ends on May eighth, is confronted by the Soviet Union. Um, so D-Day is, I think, in part possible because of Soviet first being able to to stop the German offensive and then later to push it back. And in fact, the the, the Soviets, as D-Day is being launched, launch a major offensive in in eastern on the eastern front, uh, which which pin, helps to pin down the German forces. And we go to this just a little, this a little bit closer to the ending, of course. But I want to ask you what is it arrogance from the goal when he Paris was liberated and he did. Quote this of Paris, Paris, Paris outraged, Paris broken, Paris martyred, but Paris liberated, liberated, liberated by itself, liberated by its people with the help of the French armies, and does not acknowledge the Allied. Help yeah, I mean, I think the, the France is, is 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 it's such a complex role in World War Two because it is it is it is along with Britain, it, it it basically draws the line in Poland. Finally, it goes to war. Uh, in alliance with Britain, um, it is one of the few countries to surrender. I mean, most countries, such as Norway, um, mm. such as the Netherlands, um, such as Greece, they you know the government goes into exile um, and and continues the struggle. In the case of Norway, the the the, the, the Norwegian navy and and the Norwegian um, merchant marine played a pivotal role, uh, but France actually surrenders. Um, um, it is then it is then liberated uh, and then it is welcomed back into the Western alliance. But um, 
there, there's an enormous amounts of collaboration of the highest order in, in France. You have a government that surrenders uh, and, and essentially allies itself with, with, with Germany. Um, and I think de Gaulle, who is the dissident, who is, who is fighting, is the, he's basically a rebel, he's in rebellion against the established French government, uh, does get support first from Churchill and then grudgingly from Roosevelt. Um, you know, how, how do you rehabilitate a defeated nation? that had collaborated in the highest order. And I think the liberation of Paris is just, I mean, the French people did uprise in Paris against their German occupiers. Uh, but I also think um, it was an important symbol for de Gaulle to show that France had returned uh, to the ranks of, 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 of first, you know, first break nations. But um, I mean, one of the things that divides French society basically to this day was grappling with, with defeat and collaboration. Um, and and the way to deal with that, I, I think, for de Gaulle and for and, and many of his supporters was let's emphasize resistance and let's talk a little bit about collaboration, but let's not dwell on it. Now, let's talk a little bit uh, before we go into D-Date. So let's begin with uh, Paris, sorry, Nazi-occupied France and talk a little bit about life there because it's my understanding it can be quite brutal for the French people, and as some historians have stated, that food, that there was shortage of food in in Paris, especially food was power. It was not money; it was food that was power. But let's talk a little bit about Nazi. Yeah, I mean, France I mean, France is sort of initially divided into into occupied France and unoccupied France, and the French government moves to the resort town of Vichy, um, and I mean. It, one of the things to say, I mean, the groups that were in the outs with the German, with the Germans, particularly the Jews, were were you know were were rounded up, um, and many started getting deported uh, to concentration camps uh, and death camps. Um, you know, socialists don't fare well. Dissidents don't fare well. Where farewell um, in 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 both occupied France and in and and in unoccupied France. Um, the Germans basically expropriate as much as they can from France. France, France, particularly in terms of food, um, is 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 forced to export. You know, you know, basically, it, it, that doesn't quite starve itself. I mean, the French do better than, for example, the Poles, but it's still a pretty it's a pretty brutal system in terms of uh, particularly shortages of food and fuel, uh, but also clothing. Um, limited, lim- much more limited transportation is available. Um, and, and the, you know, the Germans are the, are the occupiers, uh, particularly, in, you know, in, 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 in Northern France, um, after, after the British and American invasion of French North Africa in 1942, the, the first major D-Day in Europe by the Western allies, uh, Germans occupy all of, all of France, uh, and unoccupied France no longer exists after, um, December of 1942. Why did not Hitler choose to use the French army in his Wehrmacht? Because it doesn't. You, it's my understanding that it doesn't incorporate the French army into the Wehrmacht. He, he doesn't incorporate the French army, but it's limited within occupied, unoccupied French. And there are French volunteers that are recruited by by the SS, and so there are French speaking units. Also, those in Alsace and Lorraine are now deemed once again German citizens, and so they are forced to serve in the in the in the. In the in the German army, um, so um, yeah. While he doesn't incorporate the French army, um, 
he does incorporate Frenchmen into the, into the German army, either as, as part of now citizens of the Reich or in terms of uh, volunteers. Um, and Hitler drew, drew, it is striking, he drew from many of occupied countries do provide volunteers to his armies. Even, even Britain had a very, very small contingent of British who were fighting for the, for the, for the Germans. The only country that, that I found no evidence of any co collaboration like that was, was, um, was the United States. American POWs did not turn and, and fight for the, fight for the, fight for the Germans. So let's talk about the, the little recap of the war from Dunkirk until the Operation Overlord before, again, before we go into, because I feel like we should do a read. I did talk about World War II last summer, and let's do a little bit to recap, because I feel like yeah, I mean, I think, to understand. I mean, I think um, the war has some, in, in Western, in, in Europe has several distinct stages. I mean, the war begins in, in September of 1939 with the invasion of Poland. Uh, and France and 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 Britain enter the war, um, and and initially it's what it's called the phony war because very little very little happens. And and for example, the British are very reluctant, despite building up air power, to use it against against Germany for fear for fear of re retaliation. Um, the British, I think, are fairly confident that, for example, economic warfare will help win victory, like it did in World War uh, World War One by by the British Navy still rules the seas, um, and and can effectively blockade Germany. Um, and and the, and the notion was um, that you know that that German the German economy will collapse. It's, it's interesting to read some of the predictions about the collapse of the German economy. One of the things that prevents that was, and one of the things that the crucial ingredient uh, that allows Hitler to turn both against Poland, but then later turn west was the non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union in August of 1939 mm -hmm. and that um I don't think we give enough credit to the to the to that non-aggression pact for what it meant. I mean one thing in the case of the United States it did disillusion many some communists. I mean some communists lose the leave the party over that or become much more lukewarm and many liberals and socialists who had sort of you know, they didn't necessarily fully embrace the Soviet experiment, but they they were kind of curious about it. They were willing to give it a give it a chance. Uh, like the theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, I mean, he becomes very very critical. He he is much more skeptical of the Soviet Union because of the non-aggression pact, um, and um, and it was also a foolish thing for Stalin to do. Uh, um, in the ultimately, uh, Hitler's real real politique. Uh, was canceled out by by Hitler's racism and and and, the, and his desire. I mean, he views the Slavs as an inferior race. Um, and of course, you know, for, uh, the, one of the key events uh, on the Western Western Front or or in the war in, in Europe is is the invasion of France and and its collapse after six weeks, which is shocking to people because it's until World War II, France until the collapse of France, France was viewed as having the best army in Europe. Uh, it had prevailed in World War One. Um, it, it had a very good tank. Uh, it had more. It had more tanks than the German army, uh, but it suffers. Um, uh, I think most importantly, it suffers from bad leadership um, uh, and some really and some really foolish decisions. In retrospect, uh, you know the, the French were the French were aware that the Mar the the Maginot Line, this defensive fort fortifications 
did not extend up to the Belgian cut through Belgium. Uh, but they they very quickly moved into Belgium. Uh, there was a plan to move into Belgium to meet German forces. Um, but one of the things that they 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 failed to do, and it, it is one of the ironies of World War II, is the failure to by the Western Allies to defend the Ardennes. It's not to, it's not defended in 1940, and it was ill defended in 1944, which leads to the Battle of the Bulge. Um, but the fall of France, I mean, it leaves Great Britain and the British Empire alone, uh, and Britain will fight alone for one year. It will prevail. Um, partly because it has the Royal Navy and partly because of the Royal Air Force. Um, um, World War II, I'm not going to talk a lot about the war in the Pacific because that, that's, I think, a whole nother podcast. Yeah. Um, but I, I've always been struck um, by Franklin Roosevelt um, and his role in, 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 in World War II because I think Roosevelt opposes the Nazis um, one, I think he thinks it's a, they're a threat to national security, even in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but I also think he, he opposed them on ideological grounds. And one of them was religion. Roosevelt believes that a good liberal society, that religion is an important value. Uh, and also he believes in religious pluralism and tolerance. And he speaks, for example, he gives a address in 1936 for the National Council of Christians and Jews and radio address nationally in the United States. And he basically says, we are enriched as a country by religious diversity um, and that it, that it's important to respect this diversity because each group gives us something really valuable. Um, and it is a consistent theme throughout his presidency. I mean, in 1944, he will provide a statement to a conference against anti-Semitism. And he says, Hitler used attacks on the Jews uh, to whip up the German people. Um, and, and he is used and anti-Semitism is being used to support Hitler's game. And no good American is it, it should embrace anti-Semitism. You're, you're, you're playing Hitler's game, Hitler's game. I mean, he in 19 just before America enters the war, um, he gives a radio address and he says, you know, the Nazis are out to destroy all religion, which was actually true. Mm. Um, um I mean, Nazis and religion is a whole, like you say, it's a whole other podcast as well. Uh, but he, he, um, and and so we 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 do. I mean, in a country, the United States is very reluctant to enter another European war. We've been very disillusioned by World War One. Uh, it is remarkable what he does to bring the country to war. One after the fall of France, he mobilizes the the, the U.S. National Guard, citizen part-time citizen soldiers, the reserve forces. He supports. At first, grudgingly, but he but then wholeheartedly supports a draft, a peacetime draft. You have a massive rearmament. So the United States, if the United States had to enter World War II in 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 September of 1939, it would have been lucky to field two divisions. It was a force of about an army of about 250,000. By by Pearl Harbor, it's an army of three million. I mean, we have a massive build and a massive naval buildup. We, we are also, besides sending enormous supplies to Britain and then later the Soviet Union, by, this, by, the, by the winter of 19, um, by the fall of 1941, we're engaged in undeclared naval war uh, with, with, with Germany. Uh, the, the paradox is, uh, is that we're also concerned about Japanese expansion, but Roosevelt is indecisive on policy towards Japan. He allows second tier figures to, to run that policy where he runs 
he is directly he is his chief diplomat in dealing with 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 Germany and dealing with Britain and and trying to form an alliance essentially against 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 the Nazis where he lets second tier figures deal deal with Japan. We don't appreciate Japanese and military power. Uh, we think we can use mil economic pressure to pressure Japan to stop its aggression. What we view its aggression. Ultimately, Japan goes to war, um, and the and and because they're in alliance with Germany, uh, Germany makes it very easy for Roosevelt, in a sense, uh, it, to, to declare war against against the, the um, United States, and so and ends political debate in the United States. The Pearl Harbor and the German declaration of war against the United States ends what would have been fairly fierce debate over whether the United States should enter that war. And in many ways, the two turning points for the war, why ultimately the Nazis will be defeated is one, when they stupidly invade the Soviet Union in June of 1941, and when they declare war in the United States, because you have the, the formation of what becomes the Grand Alliance pretty quickly. Um, and I mean, under the... It is my understanding that we discussed this in uh, our episode on Barbarossa as well with David Stahl is that one of the reasons they attacked the Soviet Union is because that they had carcasses, which were again you had oil and Hitler needed oil yes, yeah. during the war. So that was one reason. But but the Soviets were very good about sending oil to the Germans. They were they were they were honoring the non-aggression pact and they were sending literally the evening before the the evening of the attack, their shipments are still going into Germany. Fuel and other and other raw materials. The, the Soviets do get military technology from the Germans, um, but the formation of the Grand Alliance um, um, and 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 and, cre and creating a broader alliance, uh, fighting under the United Nations. Um, he, ultimately, uh, Roosevelt is is able to bring much of Latin America in, into the into the into the war. In fact, by the end of the war, there are only a handful of neutral countries in the in the world that are not. Uh, in, in the war, it, it's it's you can count them on two hands. The number of neutral neutral countries out in in the you know Ireland is one of them, Sweden is another, uh, but the world gets pretty divided between Axis Spain, and Spain. Yeah, Spain as well, Portugal. Um, Turkey joined the last five months into the war. I mean, we yeah, even we allies. even basically make Argentina declare war against mm -hmm. Germany, and and eventually Turkey even declares uh, war. Um, one of the things that divides the Grand Alliance is the desire for the Second Front, uh, because Stalin, it's not until Stalingrad, the victory in Stalingrad um, in in January of 1943, it's not until Al -Al, the victory in Al Alamein in late 1942, um, is it clear that the, the that the, the it, it's not, it's not certain the Allies will win. I mean, there were three turning, turning point battles. In the Pacific, it was midway. In in the Eastern Front, it was it was um, Stalingrad, Stalingrad. and to a certain and, and Kursk, the battles of Kursk, and which decisively turned back the German offensive, these last of the offensives, uh, and and El Alamein in that that prevents the Suez from falling and Cairo from falling and turns back mm -hmm. Rommel's advance, um, and so the you know this this turning point, you know you have the, the Stalin is pressing. Uh, from night, from as soon as as soon as the United States enters the war, he is pressing the British and the Americans to open a second front. Uh, Roosevelt and his Army Chief of Staff George Marshall would have ideally liked to open one in 1942 in France. Uh, the mm -hmm. problem is the British have no enthusiasm for that. Um, 
ultimately Roosevelt decides almost as a compromise, but eager to get American forces, land forces engaged with the German army. We initially invade our first D-Day is against French forces in North Africa. Our second D-Day is once we secure uh, North Africa from from both the from Vichy, but then from German forces, we then turn to Sicily and ultimately Italy. Those are you know the other the other D days, the D days on Sicily, the D days at Salerno, the D days at Anzio, uh, and then there's the D day, which I think now the term D day was widely used in World War II, but the D day we remember is the D day on June sixth, uh, nineteen forty four. Let's begin, with, let's begin with the planning of what they, what they probe down under the Operation Overlord as the Allied yeah, invasion I mean, of Maine and Europe. Yeah, I mean, I think the first success about D-Day, uh, it, it even goes beyond the planning. It is how we structure the Western alliance. Um, um, the British, which viewed them as viewed themselves, British generals and politicians, political leaders viewed them much smarter as the Americans but the Americans now had the bigger economy, even with the empire and Commonwealth. Uh, they had more troops. They were developing a larger army. Um, and um, the British had to secede dominant leadership. Um, uh, while well, well, British commanders, for example, the Italian theater becomes under a supreme commander is British. Um, uh, the, 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 the invasion of the D-Day operation, the Operation Overlord, um, and the land campaign in Western Europe is going to be led by an American. Um, the British will have to, to, to concede that point. Uh, George Marshall, George Marshall, who was Army Chief of Staff, wanted to be that that Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces. Uh, ultimately, Roosevelt vetoes that. He thinks he's too important and must stay behind in Washington. Um, and so Dwight Eisenhower is deputized uh, to be the Supreme Allied Commander, who had cut his teeth as a commander in North Africa and Sicily, um, and then is named and is named as Supreme Allied Commander. And Eisenhower is an interesting choice because he is on in 1939. He's a colonel. He, he only, is, is his, his, his name is not that well known at the time. Right? He's not it's that well known. Yeah, he did. He didn't. Um, he didn't. Um, he never. He had been in the army in World War One. He never made it to France. Um, uh, he thought his career was was going to be re- basically not going to advance very far. Um, he's he's a staff officer now, a very good staff officer. He had served with MacArthur, for example, uh, in the early '30s, both in the United States when he was when MacArthur was Army Chief of Staff. Uh, later in the Philippines, um, he um, he had also um, had had gotten to know World War One battles very well because he spent part of his career during the 19, early 1930s is writing the official guide to American battlefields in Europe. So he was actually a pretty good historian. Uh, uh, um, he had actually done some real historical research for these guidebooks. Um, he had lived in Europe as a result of working in, the, working in these guidebooks. He, he, he lived in Paris. He, he, and, he and his family had a grand time in, in, in interwar years being stationed, stationed in, in, in Paris. One of, I could never seen combat. He had never led men in combat. Uh, but I think one of, 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 of Ike's great strengths is he recognized how important it was to build an effective working alliance and to build a command structure um, that, into, you know, it's our thing to integrate. Um, um, you know, it's actually even hard to integrate. And I mean, he also has to integrate 
naval officers and army air force officers in a command structure and the British. And, and, um, and he builds a very effective command structure. And I think um, that's one of the successes and people forget and he built any, he, he had some real egos in his, among his commanders, the, the egos of Omer Bradley um, and George Patton on the American general side, and also the ego of, of Bernard Montgomery. Um, but he had some of the divisions, there is a real British and American division, but some of the divisions is between the Shafe leader, senior leadership and his in his field generals. Uh, his number two is an Air Force Marshal. The commanders of Air Force, uh, you know, Allied Expeditionary Air Forces was it was a was a British commander. Uh, and the naval command, the naval forces were led by a British commander. So while Ike was the senior commander, all the other subordinate commands and the commands from Army, Navy uh, and Air were British commanders. And that, that the mobile, creating an effective um, integrated uh, um, command was, was vital for success. And it also would, would also be a model for, for NATO, uh, which, which NATO operates with, 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 on its command command system with an integrated command that that compo that's composed of of officers from different from different detail from different armies and so that's one of the key successes the other key this decision was made um partly there was some experiments done and one was a bloody experiment there was a raid launched against the french port of Dieppe uh by by largely canadian troops but some some british troops and also um, a handful of American Rangers, and it's a fiasco. Um, it's it, it, it's costly, um, but one of the lessons that learned is let's think hard about attacking a fortified harbor, um, because the logical place to attack, attack the closest point to Britain and, and between Britain and France was by was Calais, um, and the Germans is one of the most heavily defended parts of of France. Um, uh, in terms of the, the 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 German efforts to defend against an uh, uh, an, ally, an ally, Western Allied invasion, um, the planning uh, for for D Day is actually begun by by a British general uh, even before even before um, even before Ike arrives, um, and and the planning the, the planning takes a good a, a good year, um, and the preparations take a good I mean good year. It's it's uh, it's only in late 1943, early 1942, do we really, not only is it the planning pick up stride, but also the preparations uh, pick up pick up stride. Uh, one of the key things that delays D-Day, and it's the great excuse that the, the, the Churchill keeps using, is lack of a landing craft and the need mm -hmm. for landing craft. Um, uh, the other thing I think, you know, that makes D-Day successful, and it's, a, it's another point of the ironies of war, is you know, how to win the war. I mean, I think the British thought the blockade would work again. Um, the American Air Force, but also the British Air Force, the Royal Air Force thought we can bomb the Germans into submission. Um, and, and, and Air Force doctrine, both British and American think our bombing campaign will, will bring victory. Uh, and in the case of, in 1943, the Army Air Force is trying to knock out with daylight bombing ball bearing plants and other crucial factors. I think this will lead to the collapse of the German war effort. Uh, and it doesn't. Um, in fact, German production peaks in 1944. 
But one of the things the air war does do, it ultimately defeats the German air force because we need to. Now, if, it. if I may, it, it, it's it's due to avoid bombing industrial areas. But I do bomb them, but I do believe that it's try to avoid bombing industrial areas, right? Because they don't believe that they can pick up when they invade, but they can use well, the no, industrial but areas themselves. It, one of the things we're trying to do in forty, the air force is trying to in forty three. They're trying to bomb industrial areas. They're mm. they they. One of the big fights ICAS, and as I said, it's not just between allies, but between forces is the, the American air commanders, but also the British air commanders, don't want to turn over air assets to him. Uh, and at one point, it was the only time he, he threatened to resign. He wrote Marshall and said, if I do not get complete control uh, on the eve of the invasion over, over air power, over the air forces, I'm going to resign because I need, because uh, the air force hated the idea of having to bomb bridges and, and railway lines leading into Normandy. They thought the way to win this war was burn, was to build bomb factories or bomb Harris, Arthur Harris thought the way to win this war is to dehouse the German population, to break the civilian morale. Um, and, you know, the jury's still out of how effective air power was in, in, in terms of economically forcing the Germans, speeding German surrender. What's very clear is to, to, to for us to continue this air campaign, we had to take on the German Air Force. And that, so by D-Day, we have won the battle of attrition with the German Air Force. We have control of the skies. And that's crucial. Also, Ike wins the bureaucratic battle. And 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 in the spring of, you know, in the spring of 1944, he has control over a lot of, of the air assets he needs. And so there's a, a very successful interdiction campaign to bomb bridges um, and particularly bridges and railway lines into, into Normandy to, to try to cut off the peninsula as best as possible. One of the things that should really be remembered about World War II is the enormous cost to civilians. Even civilians were not trying to kill. Like Bomber Harris had no compulsion about killing German civilians in his campaign of area bombing. But we really did not, for example, want to kill French civilians. Uh, but ultimately, the battle for France, uh, air ca casualties from bombing leads to 100,000 French civilians dying in, the, in, this, in this war. And air power in World War, air power is still an imprecise weapon, even with our technology, witness the Gaza campaign, but it was incredibly imprecise. And when you think of 100,000 French, French dying from the air campaign, when we are trying not to kill, it, the Western allies are trying not to kill, we take a lot more precautions in bombing France um, uh, in, the, in the war against against Germany. Let's begin talking about the crafts that they use and the famous ships that the troops are using to build those as well. The late Steve Ambrose used to love talking about the Higgins boats, which were designed by this sort of entrepreneur who thought he thought against the grain. That you know the, the essential thing about the essential thing about a landing craft was that it was the ramp, the ramp that could come down and let let troops walk off, walk off of it. Um, and they build a whole host of variations. They build um, uh, you know landing craft that are more heavily armored. Uh, with uh, but but the basic thing is, uh, you know, until World War II, you did not have a craft that could could essentially. Um, Get get troops all the way up to a beach that would that had a shallow enough draft that you could literally, that ideally drop them that they barely got their feet wet. I mean, um, one one of the one of the tragedies, particularly on Omaha Beach, is that is that a lot of a lot of troops 
and a lot of land D-Days in both Europe but in the Pacific that troops are dropped off too quickly. Um, mm. But uh, um, I, I remember once interviewing a, a guy who landed troops in Utah. He, he commanded a landing craft and it was, it was interesting, the perils. He, he was rather matter of fact because he said, I, I, you know, I took, I, I did several waves and he said, I think on the first wave, he said, both landing crafts next to me blew up. They, they both were hit, you know, and I, you know, I just, I was very fortunate. I just, I just went in. Um, the, the, the naval war, the naval part of D-Day does not get as much attention, partly because it's so enormously successful. Um, I also think it definitely does not get enough attention by Americans because it's a British operation. Um, the British and the Canadian navies dominate the battle of the Atlantic and, and the British Navy, uh, provides the core, core Navy along with the Canadians. Um, I mean, there's a significant American naval presence, but, but it's an, it, it's really the the world is divided. The Pacific is in some ways an American ocean in World War II, and and the Atlantic remains a Canadian and British uh, ocean. Um, and and the Germans have practically no naval forces they can throw throw at at the American at the at the invasion, nor nor much of an air force to throw at it. And th those are key ingredients to success. Let's talk a little bit about the truth and wrong because most of them must be aware that they did came in and some most of them were there was ninety nine percent chance they would survive not would not survive this landing yeah, of Obama. Well, so let's talk a bit where their last rites, where the rituals that they had before going into this or superstitions that they used before going into Omaha Beach. Yeah, it, it's it's interesting. I wrote a book, a religious history of the American GI, and it, it is interesting about. Um, what happens um there there are there the, the military want, the Americans in World War II spent a lot of money on religion and with the first time we spent large sums of money to provide chaplains to build military um chapels for them to worship at we never really done that before uh we issue three bibles free bibles we have a catholic edition uh a protestant edition and and the and jewish scriptures that are given to GIs free free of charge and and chaplains are warned, don't be holy rollers or don't be super patriots, but they are there to explain why they're fighting and what, what, why this war is important. important. And, and uh, many of them stay very close to their men. I mean, one of the most remarkable chaplains I encountered was this cha uh, uh, Catholic priest, Francis Sampson, uh, Father Sampson. He's an army He's an army chaplain. He's with the paratroopers and he jumps on D-Day. Um, and he wow. he actually at one point he and a group of men are actually taken prisoner, and Samson says to the men, "Why don't you start praying? This will calm you down because they're they're captured, but there's all all this fighting going around them." Um, and then they start praying the Lord's prayer, and then these two the two groups of GI start arguing because the Catholics say this is the way you say the Lord's prayer, mm -hmm. and the Protestants just agreed with them. And he said, "Knock it off. Say the prayer you know the way you were taught." And he thought this. He said, "I thought I I thought this was just crazy, given how dire our situation was." But I almost became hysterical because it's argue, almost comedic in a sense. Yeah, yeah, they're arguing over whether to say at the end, "For thine is the power and the glory," because in, in mm -hmm. the Catholic tradition, you don't say those lines. Um, prayer, prayer. It's interesting about. I mean, many GIs will also on a D Day or before D Day, they'll take. They 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 can often be quite pragmatic on where they take they take comfort in. So, um, it was a D Day in the Pacific, but I remember this one Jewish chaplain. He was the only chaplain on board the ship, 
And so he had to lead all three services. And so he first led the Catholic service. He couldn't say couldn't say mass, but he he had he had one of the Catholic boys say the rosary. They sang some hymns. Um, he read some Catholic you know Catholic oriented scriptures. He then led the Protestant service, which many Jewish rabbis were very comfortable leading the general Protestant service. Mm-hmm. And then he led Jewish services for the Jewish you know, Jewish soldiers. And he said many GIs stayed for all three services. It was not uncommon, say, for Jews to take Holy Communion from a Catholic priest because everyone in the unit was doing that. So there's off there's a lot of sort of pluralism and ecumenicalism. I mean, if I may draw to to draw a parallel, because as you see in the TV show Mash, which we visited just offline, you'd see the chaplain there, Paul Mutayu. He does all three services as well. In so, so that must have been pretty common both in World War Two as well and under. Yeah, they're not supposed to, for example, uh, they're definitely told not to, Protestant and Jewish ministers are told not to say mass, but they often do ad hoc services to, you know, for Jewish, for Catholic GIs. And and uh, it's a very interesting dynamic. So so a lot, I mean, faith is very, is comforts a lot of men, but I, I always think it's important. There are atheists in foxholes. And so for some men, they are they are agnostic. They are atheists. This is not where they they find you know find their comfort. And I think that 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 religious pluralism and and diversity that 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 exists is really important. Um, it is interesting. A lot of the a lot of I think a lot of the I mean one of the things I interviewed this guy Ben Franklin, who D Day was his was his third it was his fourth it was his uh, third landing. He had landed in North Africa. He had landed in Sicily. Um, and I asked him, he landed on Omaha Beach with the first division. And he said, I asked him, you know, what was the most frightening, what was the one single frightening incident in the war that you experienced? And it wasn't D-Day. He said once he was stuck out in the desert in this one de- in the desert in North Africa and a German plane, basically, as he remembered, it might, might have been shorter amount of time, strafed him what he recalled for an hour trying to kill him. Um yeah. And that says a lot, you know, that D-Day, you know, because Omaha, I mean, he did not mince words about how brutal Omaha Beach was. Um, mm-hmm. But it always irked him that, you know, he landed with the 1st Division and they were really battle-hardened. The, the, the veterans of that division, I mean, they had been fighting since December of 1942. And it really irked him that the Rangers who had been untested in battle um, and along with the airborne units were that were considered elite units when he, the 1st, was very battle tested, um, but they the, they were sort of given a the, the the feeling was the air assault. Uh, there was a lot more optimism that the air power and and naval assault would be which would which be much more successful, and that was one of the great failures was the bombing of of the beat of the of the landing sites. Now it was it was very successful paradoxically on Utah where it was needed less. Uh, medium bombers were used, and they actually did successfully hit a number of targets. But long-range heavy bombers were used against Omaha, and you can see the craters still to this day, and they hit nowhere near where they needed to hit um, um, and killed a lot of cows um, and and even killed some Frenchmen, but not, you know, so... Um, the naval bombardment wasn't long enough, and and that was one of the disputes. And the air bombardment, particularly of Omaha, was a, was a failure. And so um, many 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 particularly untested troops um, 
from untested divisions, you know, faced much worse, much worse uh, circumstances than they expected. So a lot of them uh, did not expect. I mean, the, the 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 devastation that would occur in Omaha was not ex- was not what they were told to expect. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about because Hitler, it is my understanding, he knew that the D-Day was coming. The man in Omaha, as far as I know, is or is that the mis- kind of misconception? Was yeah, they really were aware. They they were aware that 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 an operation was coming, but they they expected Calais was going to be the target. One of the things we do very effectively to keep them thinking that is we bomb Calais very heavily um, for for weeks, uh, and even even when you know even on June you know the days around before D Day and even after D Day we continue to bomb Calais, uh, and so Calais is where we speak. The, it was it took them actually several days to realize uh, Normandy, the landing at Normandy, this. This was the real invasion. This is not a diversion attack. No, the invasion is not coming to Calais. It is coming. It is coming. This is it, Normandy. And so um, that was that was, an, I think, in terms of planning this, the selection of Normandy and keeping up the ruse that that Calais was the target. Uh, one of the you know we have the British have very effective counterintelligence. They turn the German agents in in England against them. Uh, we very successfully convinced the Germans that Patton is going to lead this phantom army, <laughs> in and 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 Patton it drives him crazy that he's not going to land on D-Day and has said you know commanding a phantom army in eastern eastern England um, and putting up a great show um, reluctantly that you know he's commanding this army that will lead you know it's hinted will will invade like uh, you know invade Calais. So let's talk about numbers on the on the Omaha and Normandy that the Wehrmacht had places since they thought it was in Calais. So let's talk about numbers that they actually had there to understand the battle yeah, I mean, itself. The, the, one of the things, there was recently an article that said, um, you know, 175,000 Allied troops land. And I actually, I, 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 I actually need to, I have to, have to dig it out because it's, it's often not emphasized how many Germans are actually, the actual numbers of Germans Troops, totally, you know, and that gets, gets very nebulous to, def, to define defenders and where where exactly defenders are. Um, the Germans had moved several better units into the Normandy Peninsula, and, uh, and, we, and it's one thing we don't fully realize, particularly at Omaha, uh, that the Germans actually had sent some reinforcements into Germany, um, into, into the Normandy Peninsula. The the other thing that, but the crucial decision Hitler. Um, Makes that that works very much to the Allied advantage is uh, German Panzer units are held in reserve v- until very late in the day in, in on June 6, nineteen forty four, and and they don't. I mean Rommel Rommel's notion was is the Battle of France and Germany is going to be lost on the day of the Allied landing, and it was absolutely vital to drive the Allies into the sea, uh, which I think I think Rommel was a realist and knew that was going to be very difficult. Uh, but if there was going to be any chance of that, it had to take place on the day of the landing. But German tanks, um, you know, ent- enter the fray too late, uh, and they're effectively repelled. I mean, there were a number of failures on D-Day. Omaha was much more costly than it should have been. Uh, the British didn't make it. They, they were supposed to see, see, seize Khan on the first day. Uh, I was, I've always been struck how close they got, uh, because I, I, I spent some time in the Khan area, uh, on a study tour on D-Day, and I could I was struck like how far the Canadians got because they they are basically 
they're they're almost there. Um, it it it, it uh, with with a few things differently. I think that the the British and the Canadians could have been successful with Khan. I mean, um, but that failure to take it on Khan, it, it turns into a bruising slugfest after D Day. Uh, nor, you know, if, if I may, I'd draw another parallel. Was was the worry that it would be kind of like extra rich that they would be a stalemate, that it would get just no, that there would be yeah, just I mean, one think, step forward, two step back, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think what 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 does go very successful for the Allies is we're not there, not driving into the sea. They have control of air, air power, air. Naval bombardment, naval, you know, one of the most potent artillery forces for the first few day, weeks of the campaign is, is naval fire from, from British and, and Canadian, British and American battleships uh, that, that the Germans, you know, do not have that kind of firepower. And the, the Americans and the British and the Canadians are able to consolidate their, 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 their beaches and, and form a unified, you know, what were separate beaches, you know, become, are linked up. Um the problem, the two problems is for the for the British, it's Khan, it's breaking Khan, which which they ultimately absolutely devastates the city and kills large numbers of civilians, and for the Americans, it's the hedgerows, which they had not really thought out how to how to how to how to break through in the hedgerows, and and ultimately, uh, the, one of the ways they break break the hedgerows or, or try to get a breakthrough is massive firepower. Um, using air power in St. Lo, uh, which leads to, to some one of the worst friendly fire incidents for American forces. It even kills a, a senior American general sending there to observe um, General McNair. Um, but um, D-Day is the beginning. It, it is the be- it, it is the crucial second front is secured. Um, and while it takes several weeks to break out of the Normandy Peninsula, once a British and American forces break out of Normandy, um, the, makes the liberation of, of France um, possible, along with the second D-Day of Fran- in, against France. Uh, the, the the less remembered D-Day landing that took place several weeks later uh, in southern France. Now, originally, the Allies had hoped to, to have simultaneous D-Days against northern France and southern France, but the southern invasion had to be delayed. But the southern invasion faced far less resistance uh, and the beaches, um, and German forces collapsed much more quickly in the south, but 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 already they'd been you know ground down. Uh, there's a historian I've met. He he plans to write a, a history of D-Day uh, and and the battle for Normandy and France from the German perspective, um, and really center it on there. Like let's tell the story because most stories are told for an obvious reason of Amer- you know the story of American successes and dwells on that. But I always thought oh, that's it was a very intriguing do- idea. Um, mm-hmm. I do believe there's a similar book on the German perspective from Van Kirk. There is one on Van Kirk from the German perspective. Yeah, yeah. It's as well. But I want to ask, because as you know, this, this is the liberation of France. Obviously, some, there's got to be some French soldiers as well participating. And so do we yes, know the yeah, number is... of French soldiers participating here as well? Um, I don't know the exact number. It's a relatively small contingent. I think it's a... My understanding is, a, 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 I think, a division strength that land. I mean, there are French soldiers that participate in D-Day. Um, and there is a rebuilding. Uh, as as the Gaul's forces move through France, there is a rebuilding of the French army. Although, And one of the things I don't think gets enough attention um, in our understanding of who fights in World War II um, is the important role of, of, of the colonies, of colonial troops, um, that, uh, you know, the British... 
the British would not have won at Al Alamein um, without the without uh, the Indi within, without the Indian Army, which was from the Indian Army. Uh, a significant number of their forces in 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 Italy are 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 from from India. The Gurkhas fight very bravely uh, in the Italian campaign. Uh, French colonial troops will fight in the battle for France, and I think we've not. It's been one of my dis disappointments in visiting a lot of World War II museums uh, in France, um, and even the the Imperial War Museum is doing a little bit better job in London, but not enough attention. To the important role of the of, of colonial troops uh, that that fight, um, uh, Britain would not have prevailed without without the empire and without the what were then the dominions, the uh, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, um, and I don't think they get enough due. Uh, uh, at, at least I'm on the part of Americans, but I even think on the part, even a part of British and French consciousness, consciousness, the role you know how vital colonial troops were. So let's talk about the landing itself and the battle of Omaha Beach and the liberation of Omaha and Normandy on the day itself and the action that took place because it must be traumatizing. We were at least one of the first yeah. boats that landed. Yeah, I mean, it, the, it, it, what you say, Omaha gets a lot of attention because it went terribly wrong in Omaha. Um, successive ways were decimated. Uh, Omer Bradley thinks he's going to have to pull the either going to have to pull out of Omaha and it was really the partly the partly as Stephen Ambrose I think correctly argues a lot of a lot of GIs you know created basically haddock forces on the beach you know units have been devastated to seize key objectives but also the decision by several destroyer captains to bring their to basically risk grounding their destroyers on the beach to bring in their 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 wep their their firepower to 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 take out pillboxes you know in, in placements, um, it's only on Omaha that it's really touch and go. I mean there were there were significant casualties on the other beaches, but they go much more smoothly. To to talk to talk about what I mean, Utah goes remarkably well. The British same thing with the British beaches and the Canadian beaches, Juno. So so um, there's sort of not the American state Utah, but Utah in France. Utah in France, yeah. There's Utah, <laughs> the British beaches are, are sword and gold. Uh, then there's Juneau, the Canadian beach, and then Omaha and Utah are the Amer are the American beaches. Um, and the, and there's there's all the other beaches, and then there's Omaha. And Omaha was 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 just was just awful. And it, and it's interesting to walk the beaches because, you know, you go to you go to Utah, and it's it's basically flat. Uh, you know, there's no. There's no place for the you know there are there are pillboxes there 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 are, there are defense emplacements, but there's no high ground really in Utah. When you go to Omaha, when you walk along the beach and you see what they had a scale, um, mm -hmm. and they're you know and there there's heavy weaponry emplacements and machine guns and stuff. This must this was really this was really a tough objective, and the the same thing, um, the same thing applies to the other beaches. There's just there's just not the high ground that there is in in, in Normandy. Uh, for, uh, that that's a nat a natural defensive barrier that that serves the Germans. Let's let's talk about the bunkers that the Germans had. How effective were they against the Allied invasion? They were because incredibly they effective, and 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 most of the many of them. If you go to deep Normandy, you can see you can walk into them, and and they're just stunningly well made. Um, uh, you know the 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 gun the guns have been taken a long time ago, but the but the but the rest of it, it it's amazing how, how how well built they were, um, and and particularly when you go to Omaha, how an effective naval naval 
uh, naval and aerial bombardment was. How, and to see the the craters that were left and and the misses, um, those, a lot of those craters are you know still survive um, from that from from June 6, nineteen forty four. So let's talk about, you know, because one of the things that do imagine is when, again, when the boats land on the beach and the doors open and you see soldiers drowning in the water and bullets firing down in the water. How how accurate is this depiction that you get from the movie? Yeah, that, that depiction is, uh, particularly on, I think on Omar, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty accurate. And as they said, um, the casualty rates are much less on the other beaches. And so... These operations in the other beach do lead to casualties, but not like in, in Omaha. It, it is it is very much a bloodbath, and, and those first waves get absolutely de decimated. Um, it, it's also, um, you know, I, I I and 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 bear in mind that particularly for a lot of there were a number of the for a number of men, this was their first experience of combat. You know, for 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 for, for veterans of the first division. They had done this before, but for many, for many men, this was this was it. Now, um, I've always been fascinated when I interviewed men about and and women who've been in combat. It, it's intriguing reactions to combat, firstly first combat, and and their stories about how they dealt with, but also, um, you know, fellow soldiers. Um, some, you know, some, and particularly some were naive, and so uh, you know they they talk, you know, they would talk about taking risks. They later learned they would they would never do they would never do, um, you know. And they also talk. I, I generally, I, I, I to do an oral history is you you interview the successful those who didn't get killed particularly, uh, but they talked about you know men would would die um, sometimes for no good reason because they didn't know what they were doing and 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 it was interesting to learn you know over the years of interviewing World War II veterans like you know I learned fortunately these tips I'll never have to use. But how to survive in combat? I mean, some of the some of the tricks they learn, uh, you know, some of some of the you know some of this you know, um, you know. Uh, I remember one guy describing not a D-Day, but later he'd landed on D-Day. He described like basically I forgot you know how he described how he how he put these grenades on strings out by his foxhole that they'd be triggered, and it even reflected. He said. 50 years later said, I don't know if I told the guy who relieved me about these grenades. Like he could, you know, it was 50 years. He couldn't quite remember, but he's very proud of this thing, this Haddock thing he had rigged up. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there were, there, you know, there were, there were physical casualties. There were men who broke down mentally under the stress. And, and what they found was um, if men could get through the first few days of battle or, or the first week or two, the chances of them having a mental breakdown, mental casualties go way down until they're much longer in, in combat. Um, but I, I think one of the things that boosts morale for British and American forces is if they were wounded and they got medical attention, they were likely to survive. Um, and one, one can't really un understate the value of particularly medics in morale. And, and the, and Let's the talk a little bit about medics on the Omaha how how challenging were the job in? And oh, I mean, it was awesome. Awesome. It was, They're unarmed and they're and they and they're out to, to try to save lives, um, along with chaplains. I mean, chaplains often, when they're if they're close to the troops, will often aid the medics and they'll often aid graves registration. So, um, yeah, it, it is a it is a it is a um, it, it's a really it's a really difficult. You know, the the medic's job 
is is really quite remarkable. You know, the role, and they're also, in in a good way, they're identified with Red to the most for the most part. The Germans did respect the Red Cross helmet and red and and medics generally. Both sides didn't f- fire on medical personnel, but even having said that, to to go out to the battle, you know, battle like on Omaha Beach to try to aid the wounded was incredibly, was incredibly perilous. Red and POWs taking on both sides. What happened in the red POWs that were taken in the minutes of battle? Oh uh, yeah, they're they're P- I mean, Francis Sampson was taken was taken during prisoner. Uh, I don't think exactly on D-Day, but very shortly after D-Day, he 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 manages to escape. Um, um, both sides do take prisoners, and for the most part, British and American troops um, uh, who were captured by the Germans and Canadian troops, the Germans by and large followed the Geneva Convention, um, and so that um, that meant they 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 went to POW camps. They had access to Red Cross packages. They had access. Red Cross uh, personnel from Switzerland regularly inspected their camps. They were to receive the same. They didn't, but they were supposed to receive the same food level of food stuff, food supplies that a, that a German soldier received. Uh, the same rations as a German soldier. Uh, it's interesting about American, German, and Italian prisoners of war when they were sent to the United States. Many of them put on weight because they were they were given the same rations as an American GI. And we were giving, to give you a sense of how well-fed the American army was, the American army, its goal was, and it largely was successful in making sure that the average American GI had a pound of red meat a day, which I don't know what it would be in in in, in, in the metric, but but that's that's essentially four Big Macs a day. That was, that was sort of cool. standard. We're giving the American GI thousands of calories a day, uh, much more than the 2008, you know, need to, you know, someone not in the military would need. Uh, and so American, British and American, Italian and German POWs, um, for, for some, this was the best year of their life being an American prisoner of war. I remember I had a friend from college who's here. His uncle was an American, was a POW in America. And he said it was the best years of his life. He had a grand time, which said something about the rest of his life. But still, uh, you know, he's out of the war and he was well fed and and, and not mistreated. Um one one of the things I, I would when I say that the Germans followed the Geneva Convention, one of the things I looked at in my book, uh, a religious religious history of the American GI in World War II, was what happened to Jewish POWs. And for the most part, Jewish POWs, particularly if they made it to a POW camp, um, the Germans by and large followed the Geneva Convention. And so so most Jew, Jewish POWs who fought with the British or Canadian or American armies. Um, were, were they protected by the other soldiers? The Jewish they were also protected by the other soldiers, but but the Germans actually did follow the Geneva Convention. Now, what does happen to some Jewish GIs is, particularly aviators, is they don't make it to the camp. And one of the understudied things about World War II is is the is the mob attacks against against American and British aviators who crash or, or bail out into 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 Germany. Uh, they're often they're often killed uh, by German mobs with the with the with the with the support of the SS and, and the Gestapo and German police. Um, but but by and large, most Jewish POWs, with a few exceptions, they are accorded the same rights as other PO, you know other uh, as their Gentile uh, comrades. Mm. 
So how many times I was starting to learn this because I was, you know, writing this book. I said, oh, I've got to deal with religion and POW camps. And I realized, what about Jewish POWs? And I realized there's practically nothing written about their experiences as prisoners mm-hmm. of war. The only group that got some written about there was there were some exceptions. So a few unfortunate Jewish POWs, but also some some Gentile POWs did end up in a concentration camp uh, in Bergen, large numbers. And a few American POWs and some Jewish POWs didn't end up in in, uh, in another concentration camp. But that was the exception, not fortunately, not the norm. So how long time did it take to liberate Normandy? And if that if let's say if it had been a failure, what would be the consequence of the war if they failed? It took. Um, I, I should have looked up the exact date. It took. It took several. It took about six weeks to pull. To uh, you know, we're. we're it, it's not until uh, until early uh, July. Do is there the breakthrough? Uh, it's not until July. Until it took several brutal weeks. Uh, but as again, after after June sixth, there was no chance of the Germans throwing throwing us throwing the Allied forces into the into the ocean. And uh, but that the expectation that might be a failure was was pretty high. I mean, Eisenhower, much to his credit, he had had his resignation speech uh, prepared, his statement prepared that it was it was a failure. He he was going to resign. Um, and, well, what were the consequences of the war had been if it had been a failure? If it had been a failure, um. I suspect, depending on how it failed, and it's always easy to speculate, it's hard to speculate, I suspect it would have been tried again. It's hard to imagine we would not have tried again. Now, it might have made Franklin Roosevelt's re-election in November of 1944 very difficult. Um, It also might have meant uh, the Soviets would have have liberated France. It wouldn't have been an impossible task. It would would have made the Soviet war effort a lot more difficult. um, but uh, but I think um, you know uh, failure was considered a possibility, and 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 I and Ike was and and I I always admire Ike's willingness to you know his his expectation. I take responsibility. Um, he was not going to dodge you know blame it on others. So let's talk about the rest of the liberation process, and I want to bring up a group that I think it's, it's my understanding that it's nothing very well credited. That is the communist partisans. In France, that happened. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 Nazis. That, that, that's what I think is is uh, one of the reasons that how the resistance is remembered. Um, the communists, communists are the, you know, you know, until night until the non-aggression pact of August nineteen thirty nine, the communists were on the right side of history in this case, fighting opposing the Nazis, and and they had the right idea that the not you know. They didn't really like capitalists or even socialists, but they even talked about a common front, the popular front. Um, and then, you know, Stalin decides to cut this deal with the with with the with the Germans, and and the, and, the, and it's, it's almost comic because in the United States, the communists go, American Communist Party goes from supporting, you know, the common front, you know, po- you know, popular front. We got to unite against the Nazi threat, a fascist threat to. We don't want to enter this war. It's a war among capitalists, and you know we need to stay out. And then after June twenty second, nineteen forty one, the communists once again become the most avid opponents of fascism again. I, I interviewed, I, I I published in my World War II series a letters of a, an American communist. I mean, he was a communist. He fought in the Spanish Civil War in the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. I mean, he can't wait to join 
the American army in World War II and killed Nazis. I mean, he is, mm -hmm. you read his letters and he's incredibly ideologically motivated to kill Nazis. He's desperate. He's, he lands on D-Day. He, he manages basically get him signed to self-assign temporarily to unit because he wants to land on D-Day. And he finally says to the, uh, to this command, to the colonel, you know, at the, under fire, he said, so now can I get my transfer to your unit? And he says, and the, and his, the colonel says to him, why don't we wait for the pencils to arrive? You know, <laughs> the landing. Uh, but yeah, in, 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 in after June of 1941, um, among the most important and largest group of resistance in France were, were, were communists, uh, members of the, you know, communist and communist party members. Um, um, and, and that's one of the problems with the resistance. I mean, one of the struggles de Gaulle has is he wants to unite the resistance movement behind him. And that's that's a very difficult feat and gets very complicated. And I'm not an expert on the resistance. I, I will also say one of the, I, I did tour Normandy in 2000. And then I went back more recently in, two, um, in, two, in two nine, uh, 2019. Um, and what in 2000, I, I got to, I was part of a, group that got to interview a resist member of the resistance and it was haunting the stories he told i mean and, you know how how they operated and and you know when, when they were successful and when they were a failure and it was really um you know it, it, it's it's a dangerous thing to do i mean he told one case of where a whole resistance cell you know got killed because they got soft they didn't they didn't kill an informant and then he turned them all in and they all got killed and that was that was really ha haunting to listen to so the, I want to talk a little bit about the goal as well, because how anxious were he that this D-Day would be successful in an liberation crowd? He must have been very anxious to for for this operation to be successful. Yeah, I mean, I think I think those who are opposing the you know there 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 are hardcore Vichy supporters in France who see the future as Germany, um, and then there are those who want to. They, they they will they will they will go with the winds and will just endure what they have to do. But for a lot of Frenchmen, they, they, they were eager for liberation. And a lot, the support for the resistance really grows as it's more clear the Allies will win. That those on the fences do, um, you know, the, you have to you know one of the reasons not to be overly critical of what people do under occupation is most people want to live. And you need to sort of pick your battles and to, to join the resistance in 1940 after the fall of France, the chances of success are not very great. You, I can see why many Frenchmen, while they might not support the Nazis, are not going to actively resist because the chances of surviving and, and having any impact are very low. But it's not surprising that the Parisians, are, you know, as Allied forces were, were approaching the city, decided let's throw off the Germans without them. Um, you know, you know, even before the Allied forces arrive. So uh, it's my understanding that the, uh, as far further inland in France, the Allied get to, it's more in the in the street cities, especially there is very intimate street fighting in street yeah, to street well, fighting. I, mean, I should say once once the Allied once the Allies have their breakthrough in in and they break out in Normandy, uh, at least for the first several weeks. Uh, you know, the, you know, it, it's they, there's a lot. There's even some optimism this war will be over by Christmas. That's even yeah. because German forces do collapse after after the breakthrough, and and um, um, but there will be there will be some significant. Yeah, there there'll be definitely some significant street fighting um, in the in the later battles for 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 um, uh, later later battles for you know particularly 
Um, one of the worst in terms of street, early battles for street fighting was the Battle for Aachen, the first German city that is attacked by Allied forces. That becomes a, a quite a slugfest and lots of street fighting and requires different sort of tactics. Arnhem was kind of similar as well. It was very street to street fighting, right? And when they liberate Arnhem as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, but but I think the thing, my, I, I, I know less about Armin. I, that, well, yes, there, there is, there is. Um, um, one of the things I should say about street fighting, it's often going building by building. And, I, and one, of the, one of the things I learned, I mean, this one historian's talked about how the American army learned lessons. And one of the things I was always intrigued by is one of the things you got into a building and you blow up walls to get at German defenders rather than approach them directly, blow up the wall next to them and then surprise them. And I thought, oh, that's a good, that's a good le lesson to learn. If I ever, if, you know, though my chances of being in combat keep going down every year now that I'm 64. So I, um, um, and I think one of the things that I think historians debate is, is uh, why did the German army win or wh why did the German army lose? And for a number of years, the German army uh, was, political Americans would make this point. They, it was almost why the Confederates lost in the Civil War. They were overwhelmed. They were, they, they, they won. The Americans, the Germans lost because of superior numbers. And one of us has to be careful with that argument because at least the Western allies do not have overwhelming strength against the German army. It, it, it's much, German, they, they, do, they do eventually get more troops on the continent than the German army, but not by a lot. We fight with a very, we put too many forces in the Air Force and to support troops. And so we, we decide to fight World War II with only 90 combat divisions, which means by, 90, by, the, by July of 1945, we basically have no reserve divisions except for the airborne division. We have committed every every unit we have, every combat division is committed, which means one of the things it means is that we can't, it's very hard for the American army to take a unit out of battle. So instead of taking units out of battles and then giving them replacements, we send replacements on peaceful basis into, into units. And the British and German army have a system where they take units out of battle and then replace them. And there, there's there's something of a rotation of units, but we we fight with a very lean. Uh, and so we, we don't we don't have we don't defeat them with overwhelming numbers. Um, and I think the American army does does become very adept. They learn a lot of good lessons. I mean, it's an army that can learn um, and and get and gets quite effective. A lot a lot of a lot of leaders and a lot of units become very effective, particularly. Uh, by by forty five, late forty four, forty five. Um, how long time does it take for the Western Army, Allied Army, to enter Paris? And when when does the girl come back to make his famous speech, Paris liberated? Yeah, I I, I actually I, I I need I should have had the I don't I don't remember the exact date, uh, but it is in that glorious summer. Um, it, it's it's. Um, but you know, by September, we're hopeful Paris has been liberated by by what is it, a holiday in America, Labor Day. They're, they're, the hope, the thinking is we might be able to uh, end this war by Christmas. And so it was a really glorious August, um, um, late July and August for for Allied forces as 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 much 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 of France is 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 liberated. Um, um, and. What is French attitudes to the Allies coming in and 
with the tanks and weapons and soldiers coming into Paris and the rest of France, liberating them from the Germans. Oh, the, yeah, I know less about American French attitudes. I mean, I think, I think French attitudes were mixed. There was some, re- I mean, the toll of the Normandy campaign on, on civilians in Normandy, there was a lot of, 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 of melancholy, uh, sometimes anger, sometimes gratitude, but at the cost it came. I mean, it's interesting to go to Normandy Day, Normandy Day, because you'll just see an abundance of Canadian, British, and American flags. And I think there's genuine appreciation tied into this is a very important part of the tourism economy. Um, but there was, there was, there was anger. I mean, there was not every French, I mean, a lot, not every Frenchman or French woman appreciated the, you know, or the collateral damage from liberation was exceedingly high. And there is some angst and resentment about that. Um, there, you know, there are, there, there is, this, there is a portion of France that's, you know, French that's sided with the Germans or that number shrinks dramatically. Um, um, I think there's a lot of resentment, particularly t- towards American liberators um, because of um I, I love the American GI. I interview, I got to know a lot of, I interviewed a lot of veterans and there's a lot of qualities that, that were really great. Uh, but a lot of them engaged in petty thievery, uh, sexual violence, even against French women um, and, and could be quite boorish and, and not appreciate appreciation of what the French sacrificed in the war and, and what it was like to be occupied in turn a number there there's a lot of animosity towards the french a lot of gi's didn't particularly like the french people they didn't think they were very appreciative uh they didn't think the french were doing their share in the war um so it, it it's an interesting it's a, there's a lot of tension there um um um, um uh, you know a lot of french were happy were glad to be liberated uh, but also very very ambivalent about the whole process and 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 to be a defeat I think the burden of being a defeated nation, particularly in the, on the part of France, because France had surrendered. I think other occupied countries could say, we did not surrender. I mean, the Norwegians could be very proud. Their king went into exile. Their government went into exile. Mm-hmm. A lot of Norwegians considered, you know, you know, fought bravely. Uh, whereas France, it was, a, you know, a traitor de Gaulle that continued the struggle. He was considered by Vichy mm-hmm. a traitor. Uh, I want to talk a little bit, and I want to quote this speech and try to quote this speech in full that the girl made when he enters Paris on his first first speech. Um, I don't remember where he made it, but that's the speech of just Paris. Paris outraged, Paris broken, Paris martyred, but Paris liberated, liberated by itself, liberated by its people with the help of the French armies, with the support and help of all of France. Of the France that fight, of the only France, the real France, of the eternal France, and let's talk a little bit what they actually meant by this speech. And as we yeah, I mean, I mean, it's ending. such an interesting thing because there would be no liberation of France without the Allies, without without the West, mm-hmm. you know, Western, without the United States, Canada, and and um, and and Britain. Um, but on the other hand, he wants to he wants to rehabilitate France. He wants France to emerge as a great power. Um, and, and there's some real. Cl- I mean, France still has a large empire, uh, while its navy has been devastated. De- de- they actually de- are allowed to remain and maintain an empire. Well, yeah, they're, they're, they're yeah, they're, they're you know, there's no rush to apply the Atlantic Chartered Empire. Um, they're they're actually uh, they're grudgingly made part of the Big Five. I mean, they're given 
they're they are given an occupation zone in Fran in Germany. It's a small one. They are given an occupation zone in 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 Fran in uh, in Berlin. They are given a seat, uh, uh, you know, on, on the Security Council, which they still hold. Um, but I, I mean, but I think the, I mean the goal is really saying we, you know, he 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 is he he very much wants to claim liberation as a French project. And ignoring reality, I mean, it's almost like the fake news of of his of his mm. era, you know. And 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 he's fortunate that the American, American and British, the, the shape allows him to do this, to allow you know French troops mm. to. Um, I mean, he. I mean, and there. I mean, and I want you to give credit to the resistance figures, the uprising in Paris. I mean, there is an uprising. It is one of the reasons why Paris mm. is not, you know, survives. It's not ruined. Um, and if, again, if I may. Do you gives very little credit in the speech and in the future to the French partisans and especially communist partisans as well. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't well, seem to them. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no, I mean, France, you know, de Gaulle, de Gaulle, you know, it's a very, it's a, during the Cold War, it was very awkward for Americans to acknowledge. It still is, even because the legacy of the Cold War, how important the Soviet role was in the war. And, you know, and, mm. you know, I really, you know, historically, it doesn't get much more despicable than than the Stalin. Although you know it, it, what's so tragic about World War II is, I mean, Stalin's awful, but Hitler's even worse. I mean, which which says which says a lot. And so I think, yeah, I mean, he we don't want to credit Americans don't like to credit the Soviet role. We like to think we overstate our important role our troops played. Um, and same thing with the Gaul and the, and 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 the you know, French resist. Not only does he want to credit the Allies, but also not recognize. Um, you know the 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 French the role of Communist Party um, in in resisting uh, occupation. Now, and of course, very few troops actually knew French or or knew what the was, but it must be translation of speech speech to the to English. So, what were the troops' reaction to to speech uh, when they just acknowledge their help in the effort? Well, as I said, I think yes. I, American troops were who fought in Europe were pretty well informed because of both. A huge majority of American troops. Um, I, I actually, I, it's a, it's interesting. I, I should go back and look at Stars and Stripes, um, how it reported this speech because it was likely reported in Stars and Stripes. I, I'd be curious if they quoted him at length, um, but likely, you know, the, the American GI was pretty well informed in Europe. The Stars and Stripes is a daily edited by enlisted men, and it was, had a pretty pretty free. Um, it had relatively few restrictions. It was not an official organ of, of the military. It really was a GI edited newspaper. Drove Patton and Omar Bradley crazy, particularly the Bill Malden cartoon. So they would have they would have likely known known about the, the as I said, there's a lot of criticism of the French support for the war effort. American American GIs when they they grumbled about the British, even the grumb and grumbled a little bit about the Soviets, but but they had a lot more grumbling about the about the French and French support for the war effort. Now, I think we did a round it up there because, of course, of what happened in Paris after the liberation is a whole other episode and all other topics to discuss. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure yeah, to have yeah, you. Yeah, no, on. it's a real pleasure. Um, and before you go, do you have any record people buy your book if they want to read about GI and religion? Or do you have any other books on social media where people might find you if they have any questions they want to ask about? Yeah, I mean, I, just, I recently did a book on reporting World War II. And, and there was a really fast, in terms of dealing with Scandinavia, there was a fascinating article about um, 
about the Finnish war and an American reporter it was it was written by a, a Finnish scholar. Um, so I did I recently had a, a reader uh, reader on World War II on, on journalism it was it was a failed con it was a conference that was supposed to take place in April of 2020 uh, aboard the Intrepid Museum in New York Harbor and COVID came 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 to haunt you know Kate led to its cancellation but it led to a to a a, 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 a set of articles really good articles and I recently published co-edited published the Oxford Companion um, Oxford Handbook on World War II. Which covers covers the whole whole. Well, there's some parts I would have loved to cover more, but it does try to cover the global history of the war. One of the things I edited a World War II series with Fordham University Press, and I one of the things my mission as a historian in the United States is to make sure Americans remember World War II was a global war, uh, and not forget to, particularly the contributions of other allied allied countries. Um, and so um, that that's one of my my mantras and. Um, and and I think World War II, um, you know, I, I teach mainly about the United States, but it it is defining moment for uh, for world affairs. It it is it for example speeds decolonization. Um, uh, that's one of the more positive legacies, but it also leads to a a bipolar war um, with the rise of the Soviet Union and and the United uh, the United States uh, in terms of technology. You know, imagine a modern world without radar or computers. These are both things that come out of World War II. So, um, and I said, particularly since I think many of your listeners are, are in Europe, I would, I really would try to visit toward D-Day, the Normandy Peninsula. Um, one, it's, it's, the history is fascinating. Make sure you see the Bayou Tapestry though. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I was annoyed at the second tour group is they didn't take everyone to the Bayou Tapestry. And I think if you're, you know, it was an optional part of the tour the second time I went. And I, I, I'd seen it already, but I told everyone, you got to go see that. Go pay the extra extra dollar to go see the uh, the extra, you know, the extra euro. Um, um, but I, I um, uh, there's some there's some really good books out on D-Day. And I really <laughs> recommend, for example, one of my mentors is a, is a historian, uh, the late Stephen Ambrose. Um his book, particularly Band of Brothers and and D Day, are quite good. But there's also some uh, there's also a really rich literature on on D Day that's well worth reading. And and thank you, thank you so much for me. Thank yeah, you so much for coming here. It's been a ple great pleasure to have you. This has been without extra. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are an Apple Podcast, consider writing a review. That would help us out a lot. If you are on Spotify. Consider giving us five stars. You can also give us one, though five would be preferable. And if you liked this episode, check out some other episodes you have. Be sure you're going to find something you like. And we'll, of course, cover the other topics on World War II as well, such as Operation Barbarossa and the Soviet invasion of Berlin. We mentioned a few, and we have more to come, I'm sure, in the future. This has been uh, well, that H12. My name is Alan, and I'll see you in the next episode. Thank you. We love our pets, but when the floor is covered in fur, that's harder to love. Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has powerful 8,000 PA suction to make hair vanish from floors in just one pass. Plus, the roller brush has automatic detangling for easy hands-free maintenance. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.